Well, good morning. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have a pop quiz for you. Don't worry. Don't raise your hands. You don't have to raise your hands. Just ponder this in your own head. Pop quiz. Who has ever doubted that Jesus is who he says he is? Or who has ever thought that maybe, maybe I'm not a Christian and this story may not be true? Or who has ever asked the question, is God good? Who has ever had a big come down from an exciting initial experience? Perhaps there was a high initial excitement when you first were connected to Jesus and to his story, and then you hit some suffering and you were just not sure. All these questions point toward a need for confirmation. They point to the presence of doubt. And suffering often seems to be the thing that brings the fog of uncertainty, the storm of doubt, right? When cancer strikes or disease ravages your body or the body of a loved one, the fog rolls in. Is everything okay? Is this good news story certain and true because I'm facing some rough times? Perhaps a deep strain occurs in relationships or, or someone betrays you and your mind goes to, what do I do? Is God still good? For some of you, it may be your own sin that causes you to doubt the work of Jesus. You look at yourself and you look at your actions and you say, I hate these actions and I hate these choices I keep making. Perhaps that means God did not change my heart, did not redeem my soul. Whatever the suffering or sin, the disease or difficulty, what is common is that they all give opportunity for us to doubt. To doubt if Jesus is who he says he is. To doubt whether you belong to the story. To doubt whether the story is even true. And what is that story? If you were to turn all the way to the beginning of this book, you would know the story starts with creation. God created everything good and beautiful, humanity connected properly with Him and with each other. But then the story continues with a fall. The fall is humanity breaking trust with God and bringing brokenness into all creation, relationships, and souls. We know the reality of that part of the story, right? We see it all around us every day. But the story doesn't end there. God brings redemption. He sent his son Jesus to redeem us, to repair trust and pay for sin and mend brokenness. And one day he will bring full restoration, complete and comprehensive restoring of all creation. He will make all things new. That's the story. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And we sit in the middle times, before restoration, right? Before all is made new, and the middle time is still full of suffering and difficulty. We live in the middle time, and within the middle time, doubt is a reality. Because the fullness we hope for is now only seen in the partial. The assurance of things hoped for is only partially visible, the conviction of things unseen is of things unseen, right? 
And when you can't yet see something, it is easy to need some confirmation. This morning, we get the great opportunity to observe the doubts of a big-time believer who needed confirmation while living in the middle time. We will hear about John the Baptist from Matthew 11. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 11. It's about that far into the book. Matthew 11. So turn there in your Bible. And through John's story, we will see that the doubts of a believer are calmed by the works and words of Jesus. The doubts of a believer are calmed by the works and words of Jesus. I'll start by reading verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, we have been walking through chapter 10 for several weeks, the last several weeks, right? Jesus was sending his disciples. He was sending his apostles to the various towns around the area to proclaim the kingdom and to do the same ministry that he is doing. They were sent quickly and warned that people may not accept them. That people may reject the kingdom, they may reject the message, and we have been reading through the preparation that Jesus was giving his disciples. And now we're in chapter 11, the preparation's over, he has sent them, and when he was done instructing, they go off on their mission, and what does Jesus do? He continues doing his mission. Description, this is what's really interesting, description of ministry is a common refrain in the book of Matthew. There's often these mile markers in the book of Matthew where it says, he was preaching, he was teaching, he was proclaiming the kingdom, Jesus was doing ministry. In fact, this description is a recurrence in the story of Jesus. If you recall, the first time this even comes up is all the way back in Matthew 3. The ministry of John the Baptist was described, and Matthew wrote, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was a mile marker. Here's a ministry that's happening. Mission is happening. And John baptizes Jesus, if you recall, which becomes almost a handoff of ministry. Then in chapter 4, we read that Jesus, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. And then we read the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is a particular teaching, a particular proclamation of the kingdom by Jesus. And then what happens? He continues with ministry in Matthew 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Sounds familiar. And healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest, his harvest. And the last several weeks, we have been in chapter 10, where he is preparing the disciples to do just that, to go into more towns, to go tell more sheep, to proclaim to more people. And he sends them off, and he continues to do the mission. I think this is fascinating for two reasons. First, Jesus didn't send out his disciples, then kick his feet up thinking, I have sufficiently delegated this work. My job here is done. Jesus keeps working on the mission. 
Jesus sends disciples to proclaim the kingdom, and then he keeps proclaiming the kingdom. That encourages me. Even at the end of this book of Matthew, when he tells his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples, and really he's telling us to make disciples, to continue his mission, he also says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is not asking us to do anything he is not also doing with us. Isn't that good news? He has not simply delegated the proclamation of the kingdom to you and is just sitting at the right hand of the Father thinking, I hope this goes well. Jesus is working. Jesus is sending helpers, namely the Holy Spirit, to empower, to encourage, to melt stony hearts, to bring people to himself. We are not in this alone. Isn't that good news? And secondly, this phrase is that marker. It is that mile marker that has been taking us all the way through the book of Matthew. And it's a flag for us to begin to think about the beginning of the book of Matthew. This is not a haphazard ministry of Jesus. It is not ad hoc. It's not flying by the seat of anybody's pants. There is a rhythm to the mission and this is, a, this is all a continuation of the plan, and Matthew is reminding us that the plan is still proceeding. And it reminds us how the proclamation of the kingdom began. If you follow the recurring theme of the kingdom being proclaimed, it goes all the way back to John, right? This plan started with John the Baptist, John the Immerser, John the Dunker. In Matthew 3, in those days, again, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The beginning of the plan. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Because Matthew knows the book of Isaiah in the front part of your Bible that says a messenger comes first. When the Messiah comes, the chosen one, the king, the Christ When the Christ shows up, he will be preceded by a forerunner, someone to clear the path, someone to tell the people the kingdom is at hand. And the voice crying in the wilderness in the book of Isaiah, that's in chapter 40, is John the Baptist. He started the proclamation of the kingdom of God. He is the one that baptized Jesus and did a handoff of mission to the king, to the Messiah, the chosen one, to the Christ. That's what that title means. John was there baptizing Jesus when God the Father spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So when we hear this line, teaching and preaching in the cities, the ministry line comes to mind and we are flagged to remember, oh yeah, how did this start? We remember John. He is flagged in our mind and we remember to think about John. And how does the story continue? Matthew writes in verse 2, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John, you remember that guy? He hears and sends his disciples to confirm Jesus is the one. Now John had been arrested all the way back in chapter 4. 
The handoff from John to Jesus had occurred. John had baptized Jesus, and Jesus was about to start the ministry. And Matthew actually writes for us, as Jesus is starting his ministry, he heard that John had been put in prison, had been arrested. And now John is in prison. We'll hear more about the reasons he is in prison in chapter 14. But his ministry as a prophet had gotten him crosswise with Herod, one of the provincial leaders. So Herod binds him and puts him in prison so he doesn't have to listen to him anymore. And John has been sitting in prison for seven chapters. That's a long time. I'm not sure how long, but it's a long time. He's been in prison long enough to get reports about the work of Jesus. He's not been following Jesus around. He hasn't been able to watch Jesus. He's getting reports. This isn't just a day in jail. It was long enough to sit and wait for the word about what Jesus was doing. It was enough to hear from report after report, the deeds of the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Chosen One. Don't you feel for John? He was the messenger. He was the voice crying in the wilderness for the coming of the King. Now he's sitting in prison, suffering. He is the voice in Isaiah, and he's sitting in prison. My expectations would not be met, right? And friends, he knows, he knows this book. He knows the words of Isaiah that spoke about him. He knows what is said about the coming one, the Messiah, the King, the Chosen One, the Christ. He knows in Isaiah 29, it talks about the Christ this way. In that day, the death shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing and the scoffer cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who by a word make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate. And with an empty plea, turn aside him who is in the right. He is hearing about the deeds. He is hearing these reports of the works of the Christ and he's matching it to what he knows. The deaf they have heard, I know what that says. The blind see, that's what Isaiah talked about. But he's sitting there in prison and he's thinking, what about the ruthless? I'm sitting in prison because of some ruthless guy. Will the king show up fully? Will all of this happen? John knows what the book says about the king. He knows the comprehensive good news of the kingdom of God. He knows about the restoration. And as he sits at the beginning of the kingdom of God, with it within reach, touchable, right here, I think he can't help but see this could be bigger. This can be bigger. He knows Isaiah 35 that describes the fully realized kingdom of God, the restored creation. And I'm sure he is seeing bits in the beginning and the entirety of the chapter is dancing through his head. Let me read this to you. This is Isaiah 35, describing the restoration. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. 
They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Doesn't the restored creation sound great? Even the wilderness dry spots will be spots of life and growth, and goodness, and water. Sorrow and sighing shall be exchanged for gladness and joy. The things that we should be afraid of will no longer be there. And John is sitting there in prison, and he knows the words of Isaiah, and he's hearing about the deeds of the Christ, the Messiah, the King, and he can see, yes, it matches with what I know, but I think there's supposed to be more. The ransom shall return, right? Doesn't the king trounce injustice and uncleanness? Doesn't he put all this right again? And John, at the beginning of the kingdom, sits in a jail cell. And I think it is safe to say that his expectations are not being met. He has seen some amazing highs. He baptized the Christ for crying out loud. He heard the voice of the Father confirm Jesus as Son. He proclaimed the kingdom coming. And the king showed up. Now he sits in a prison. He was on a mountain. But the valleys come. And the valleys often bring doubt, uncertainty. Good doubt is observing the misalignment of future hope to current circumstances and not knowing what to do, not knowing what to think. This brings a need for clarity, for confirmation, for help with truth. Suffering will do this. Know this, friends. Suffering will do this. Broken relationships will do this. Sickness Loss of job, loss of family, mental anguish will do this. All of these things have the tendency to knock us off balance and have us uncertain about truth, have us uncertain about our hope, have us uncertain about what we should expect. Suffering is the muffling pillow over the clear song of truth. And John is sitting in suffering. 
at the beginning of the proclamation of the kingdom. He can recall Isaiah, but all his circumstances are discouragements. All his circumstances are distorting truth for him. So John is sitting in doubt, and he does what I hope you all do in doubt. He sends for Jesus. He talks to Jesus. He sends word through his disciples, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? This is like a telegram before we could pray to Jesus. I love this because he is talking to the one who can help. When you are doubting, you have two options. You can defer to your doubt or you can doubt your doubt. All too often within our culture, we have such an emphasis on individualism, such an emphasis on me and what I think and what I feel, such an emphasis I think we defer to our doubt. We nearly deify our doubt. We place it on a pedestal and we allow it to define our thinking, to define our posture, to inform how we live our lives. That will lead you to a cul-de-sac, friends. You will only go to things that confirm your doubts. You will only go to voices that encourage you to stay in the cul-de-sac. You will be stuck. This is not good for you, friends. Don't drive in circles in the cul-de-sac of doubt. Don't listen to the siren song of critique. It will have you dismantling everything, and it is a song that does not give you what you need, solid hope in the middle times. The other option is to doubt your doubts. Why would you give your doubts a trump card? You are a complex, embodied person greatly affected by your environment. Suffering has an effect on you because you are an embodied person. You are heart, soul, mind, strength, body. All of these parts work together and affect each other. What affects your body affects your mind and your soul, and what affects your mind and your soul affects your body. You are connected in multivaried ways. Something as simple as missing a meal can put your mind in the wrong spot, right? Any of you guys been hangry before? In fact, let me give you a small example. This week, I had to travel for work, the other job, not this job. We've had sick kids for way too long and they're waking up in the middle of the night, and everything is exhausting and tiring, and I had to get up super early and didn't really get to sleep anyway, so it didn't really matter, and drive three hours out to Eastern Oregon to be there by 8 a.m., and I was there for work, and the environment was different and strange, and I was tired and stressed, and I didn't want to be there, and all of a sudden, I had a bout of doubt sitting in the hotel room, and I talked with Leslie and I texted her and I, and I called her on the phone. I talked to my wife. Hey, I, I don't want to be here. Am I even supposed to do this job? Is this even part of the plan? Is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? That's just some tired kids in a busy week putting me out of balance. What does more prominent suffering do? Realize this, friends. It will come. It will throw you off balance. Why would you give prominence to the, to the doubts that invariably come in the midst of difficulty? When they show up, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. 
Doubting your doubts is not just ignoring your questions. Please, please ask your questions. Truth is not scared of questions. Doubting your doubts says, I'm going to run to Jesus and ask for answers. I'm going to stick in my community and ask for help. I'm going to crack open this book and I'm going to pray and ask for clarity. This is what John is doing here. He has some doubts and he is connecting to his community. He says, guys, come here, I need to talk to you. He is requesting their aid and he is sending word to Jesus to say, I'm not sure, but the beginning of the kingdom doesn't seem to be as good as I think it should be. Are you the one? Or is there another one coming? Are you the son of God? Are you the king? Are you the Messiah, the chosen one? I hear about the work of the Christ, but are you the Christ? Are you bringing the kingdom because I'm sitting in prison and I'm not so sure? And friends, if John can doubt, be encouraged. He baptized Jesus. He was the voice crying in the wilderness. Do not think you must be a strong, undoubting Christian to be a good Christian. Good Christians are not those that don't have questions. A good response for a Christian is to run to Jesus with your questions. And John, in his doubt, is modeling for us the right steps. As though John is saying, this is rough. My mind is not in a good spot. My body is clearly not in a good spot. It's in a prison. I am going to talk to Jesus. I'm not going to defer to my doubts. I'm not going to entertain them in the corner of my jail cell and isolate myself. I'm going to reach out to my community. I'm going to talk to Jesus. So his community, his friends, go and ask the question, And here's what Jesus says in verse 4. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus answers John's disciples by pointing to the results. He points to the healing and the good news proclaimed. I am so glad Jesus didn't tell John's disciples, you tell John to buck up. You tell John to stop asking questions. You tell John to just have a stiff upper lip. Can you just tell him to be a good follower of Jesus and put a smile on his face? Doesn't he know good believers never doubt No. The answer is go, tell John what you see. Tell John what you hear. Go and tell John what I am doing. Go and tell John what Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ is doing. And he recaps what his ministry has been. The blind receive their sight. Sounds like Isaiah, doesn't it? The lame walk. 
lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. The Messiah is doing things. The Messiah, the Christ, is doing the things you expect the Christ to do. The hallmarks of the kingdom are within your midst. The kingdom is at hand because the king is at work. The beginning of the kingdom is here. That's what he's telling John. And friends, we need that today. We need the community to remind us that Jesus has not stopped working. That is why it is so cool to sit in a life group and remind each other how often prayers have been answered. This is one reason we live in community, to keep our eyes on the truth. Otherwise, we are prone to isolate in the midst of suffering and forget what is true because we go to the corner of our cell. How many of you needed this many times over the past two years during the pandemic? I know I did. Please, someone remind me what God has done. And people could tell me about lost people becoming Christians. Previously hard, gospel-rejecting people are now soft to the gospel. People who had cancer that no longer have cancer. About long, broken relationships finally being healed. About sin that had its teeth in someone's soul, but now that sin has been defanged. And as I remembered and heard and rehearsed through the stories, I was reminded, oh yes, God is good. He is doing good things. If we are not careful, we are prone to have very short-term memory, and it takes practice to have a long one. If you don't practice, it's, well, I don't think God's done anything today, so he must not be doing anything. I haven't seen him working, so he must not be working at all. And John pulls in his community for his memory, and Jesus answers and points to what he has been doing. Yes, the Messiah is at work. He is functioning as you think the Messiah would function. And I think you also have Jesus subtly saying, you tell John what you see because I know the book of Isaiah as well. I know what the Christ is supposed to do. I know what is bouncing around in John's brain. I know what John longs for, and I am that king. I have begun that work. It is starting now, but the full arrival will be a time coming but it is started. Jesus seems to be quoting even in his answer from Isaiah. He says, the poor have good news preached to them. Isaiah 61 says it this way. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus says, you tell John. You tell John Jesus is the one he has been waiting for. He is the one that fulfills the scriptures, the Isaiah scrolls. He is the one that is bringing compassionate healing. He is the one mending all the ramifications of the brokenness of sin. He is the one that raises the dead, even death, is no match for this king. He is the one that offers hope. 
John, you know what it says. The king will open the prisons. The kingdom will proclaim liberty. You tell John, I am that king. And that the kingdom has begun, but we are just at the beginning. It's as though he's saying, John, you are hoping in the right king. Jesus is not just another additional forerunner, and the real king will show up later. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Christ. He came to us. He inaugurated the kingdom. He put it at hand, and he will come again and make all things new. He will break the bars of the prison and banish death. The poor will rejoice forevermore, and sickness will no longer be weight on our bodies. The day is coming. Jesus is telling John that he is that king. He doesn't have to hope in another. And friends, Jesus is that king. You don't have to hope in another. And Jesus says, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus says, Happy is the one not repelled by him. Happy is the one, congratulations to the one, it sounds like Sermon on the Mount, right? Congratulations to the one who is not offended, who is not repelled, who does not stumble over Jesus. We already know that Jesus is offensive to those who don't want to believe. We know he is driving a wedge into family and city. We know the message of this king is necessarily subversive, necessarily revolutionary, because it shakes and restores the fabric of the universe. From broken creation to wrecked hearts, And someone that dramatic will be offensive to those who are decidedly comfortable in the way things are and not in the way things should be. And you could be offended. You could stumble because you expect the Messiah to come in a different way or a fuller way or a quicker way. Maybe you think Jesus has not banished suffering forever yet. Because he has not brought the political victory he will one day bring. He is a king after all. Because you expect more, because you want it now. Friends, Jesus is proclaiming a kingdom where you will be blessed if you do not stumble over the king. If you are not repelled by the king bringing restoration. And if you doubt, don't entertain and coddle your doubts. They will have you turning from this Jesus. They will encourage you to be offended by him. They will encourage you to be repelled by him. They will encourage you to stumble over him. Instead, run to Jesus. Talk to his community. Ask for reasons to hope and be reminded of truth, and you will be blessed. John was sitting at the beginning of the kingdom and he had doubts, but he ran to the king with his doubts. The king proclaimed good news and healed bodies. This king, this Jesus died and rose again, kick-starting the kingdom, making certain its dominion and reign. That future restoration, the end of the story, is a certainty. But now is the middle times, the waiting times. And John also sat in the middle times and was still in prison. He wasn't miraculously freed that day. 
His hope could be secure, but his circumstances did not change. He may doubt again because he lives in the middle time. And we sit in a similar spot, the middle place, where the kingdom has already started but is not yet here in fullness, where questions and doubts are bound to come because suffering is ever-present. When is justice going to reign? Why are things not like they should be? Are you really the killer of sin? Because sin keeps dragging me down and I can't seem to escape. Are you really a good king because so much evil is in play here? When you live in the middle times, the doubts of the middle times will come. You will doubt in the middle times. But do what John did and talk to Jesus. When the doubts come, call up the people in the pew next to you. Call up your friends, your life group, Jesus' community, and tell them, talk to Jesus for me. I want to talk to Jesus. Will you pray for me? Will you pray with me? Run to Jesus. He is the one doing the work of the kingdom and will one day restore all that is broken. And he is the one that can point you to the work he is doing, to the work he has done on you, and I am confident he will do work in you to encourage you even as you wait for him. Let's pray. Lord, we do not sit in prisons like John, but we have all experienced parts of life that have given us reason to doubt. Holy Spirit, would you press into my friends memories of Jesus' work from the past to encourage them in the present and secure their hope in the future. Give them the grace of remembering your good works. God, give them reason to praise you for who you are and what you have done. Holy Spirit, give us a default response in the midst of doubt. Have us running to God for help. Give us a rapid calling to our communities and put these words on our lips. Talk to Jesus for me. I want to talk to Jesus. Lord, I'm so grateful that you can hear us with no delay and we don't need, to, we don't need friends to walk to you to talk to you. Answer my prayers in your name. Amen.